Hi, I'm Benjamin Studebaker. Hello, I'm Alex Canavos, and this is Political Theory 101. So today on Political Theory 101, we're going to talk about, it's called An Element, it's really a short book called Monasticism and the City in Late Antiquity and the Early Middle Ages. It came out uh, just this year by a couple of uh, German and or Austrian scholars, uh, Fafinski and Remenschneider. It's an interesting little book about monasteries in the Roman Empire and the post-Roman world between the years 300 and 700 AD. Uh, It's also got a chapter on monastic life outside the imperial borders, uh, focused on the activity of Christian monastics in Persia, China, the caliphate a little bit. It's very, very interesting because it is focused on the politics of monasteries, on how they fit into cities, how they fit into states, how monks and ascetics interact with established political elites. I think it's a ton of fun. So let's talk about this a little bit. Uh, Insofar as monks and monasteries tried to oppose cities openly, they drew opposition. And in the early years, uh, in the 300s, there was quite a bit of criticism of monks and monastics from Roman civil authorities. So in 370, for instance, Emperor Valens enacted a law prohibiting the devotees of idleness from living in Roman cities. Other Roman emperors followed suit. Valentinian, Arcadius, even Theodosius legislated against monks. But gradually, the monks found ways to win over the authorities, winning an explicit invitation to return to Roman cities in 392. And eventually, a sizable number of monasteries, especially nunneries for women, were established within cities, within the city walls themselves. Even hermits, who are said to have dwelt in the desert and renounced the world completely, even they would, in stories about hermits, return from the desert and give advice both to lay people and to bishops and politicians. They would make themselves useful and enjoy the political roles they would take on. This fusion of monasticism and Roman political thought worked in part by adapting key Roman political concepts to the monastic context. So for some ancient monastics, the aim was to make the city serve God, and that meant making the city serve the needs of monastic inhabitants. In effect, to turn the whole city into a monastery where the lay population serves and helps the monks to follow their spiritual paths, right? Conversely, the monastery was often explicitly understood as a city with the monks referred to as citizens of a city of their own. So in the Roman Empire, the city and the citizen are basic political units, right? The citizen is a member of a city and the city is a member of the empire. And cities can petition emperors for things. Cities can send 
uh, you know, gifts to the emperor and ask for things in return. They can send delegates, important or prominent citizens, to the imperial court to negotiate stuff for themselves, right? So the monastery often gets framed as a better kind of city that allows for a better kind of citizenship rather than as a negation of the city or as a negation of citizenship. The monk is a better kind of citizen and a better kind of citizen because the monk is part of a better kind of city than the traditional Roman city. Roman elites were traditionally patrons of their cities, right? If you think about classical Rome, uh, pagan Rome, you've got elites that are holding games and holding races and building statues and building temples and building aqueducts, right? Well, in the period of Christianization, it became increasingly popular for these elites to contribute to monasteries instead of some of those other kinds of public works. So Roman elites, even non-practicing lay elites, could become patrons of these spiritual cities. And that would allow people who were committed to public life, were interested in politics and in, say, being governors, uh, those people could improve their standing by becoming associated with the monasteries. They could look pious. Now, St. Augustine criticized this practice insofar as these Roman elites would often donate money rather than property, rather than land. So when Roman elites donate money, that keeps the monastic orders in a state of dependence upon their continued generosity, right? And that limits the freedom of the monks because they become reliant on these continuous donations of money. And therefore, they can't challenge their patrons politically. If a Roman elite gives land, the land becomes its own source of income, its property in the complete sense. So if a monastery has its own land, then it has autonomy as a consequence of that. But if instead it just receives gifts of money, then it's going to need more of those gifts of money. It's going to become addicted to those gifts of money and increasingly subordinated to whoever is the source of the money. So for Augustine, it was important that if Roman elites want to give something to the monasteries. They ought to give land and not cash. Young Roman nobles could also parlay time spent living in monasteries to make a push for powerful offices within the church. And bishops in particular are very, very, very often former monks who, after spending some time in monasteries, leave monastic life and become priests. Now, we often think of the monastery as something old. You know, today, if you're joining a monastery, it's often because you don't like modern life in some respect. You're not comfortable with modern life. The institutions of modernity, they don't really suit you. But in ancient Rome, we have to think of the monastery as something new, as a cool place for young people to go to show that they're serious about radical forms of spirituality. And if you think of it as a cool place, the place where, you know, if you were really ambitious and trying to get ahead, that's where you'd want to go. These entanglements with politics and cities become much less surprising. Pope Gregory the Great, who uh, lived between around 540 and 604, he complained that the monasteries were sullying religion by fusing it with political ambition. 
Yet after the fall of the Roman Empire in the West, the monasteries became not just alternative cities, but really in many regions, quite significant settlements because populations were falling. Many of these regions were de-urbanizing. And in some regions that were never formally integrated into the Roman Empire, where urbanization was always limited, they became really key settlements. And this would be the case for, say, Ireland, where the monastery was, in, in many cases, the largest town around. As it became impossible for elites in the Western, former Western Empire to travel to the old prestigious schools in Italy, local monasteries became leading providers of elite education with monks performing the role pagan teachers of rhetoric performed in earlier times. So if you think back to the, you know, the fourth century, if you were a member of a wealthy, well-to-do Roman family in Gaul, you could send your kid to Italy to study under the Neoplatonists, and your kid could get this really cosmopolitan, posh education with all the scholars from all around gathered together in these key cities, these metropoles. But once the empire breaks apart and there's much less uh, possibility of contact and, and free movement in the Western Empire in particular, you're going to need local institutions and structures to provide this education, to train people in, in reading and writing, to uh, you know, help people who have learned the basics, to become familiar with history, with uh, uh, ancient texts. All of this increasingly gets done in the monasteries. And this means that the monasteries are playing an important pedagogical role for elites in these regions. They are tied to elites insofar as they perform this pedagogical role for them. Even in the Eastern Empire, where you don't have that level of deurbanization and disruption, the monasteries increasingly take on a pedagogical role and compete with other institutions that perform similar functions, older institutions that perform similar functions. It's also the case in the Eastern Roman Empire in particular that monasteries become heavily integrated into the Mediterranean uh, trade system. Monasteries deliberately produced goods to be sold in cities. And increasingly, monks with business sense were lauded because they brought lots of money in. And that money could then potentially be used to help the poor. Some monasteries possessed considerable farmland. Eventually, some did acquire enough farmland that they could be self-sustaining estates. And many of them sold agricultural products like wine and olive oil. If the monastery is a better kind of city, right, a better kind of city wouldn't refrain from participating in commerce at all, but it would participate in commerce in a more ethical way. Right? You, the bookkeeping has to be really scrupulous. Uh, and if there's surplus income, it has to go to the deserving poor. You know, that's the way in which all of this is framed. So the monastery takes on a lot of the functions that you would associate with any kind of Roman estate, but there's an emphasis on you know, doing it all the right way, really being really scrupulous. It's not a complete changeover in the form of political economy, though. It's not like these farms are run in a completely different way from conventional secular farms. 
It's just that there's an emphasis on on ethics on the part of the people who are running the show. So it's it's mainly a moral and rhetorical emphasis on there being a better kind of arrangement when it comes to the economy in particular. There's less of an obvious case that the monasteries were doing something different or distinctive economically. Eventually, the city metaphor leads monks to directly petition rulers for special privileges for their monasteries in exactly the same way that local elites used to go to the imperial court and ask for favors from the emperors. And what kinds of special privileges? Stuff like tax breaks, exemptions from laws, even troops to protect the monasteries. All of these things could be asked for by monks who went to imperial courts. We also start to see disputes about whether monks fall under the jurisdiction of ecclesiastic or civil law. So monks, as you might imagine, claim that they are living a more thoroughgoingly religious life than, say, politically embedded uh, priests or bishops. And so often monks will challenge the authority of nearby bishops. And amusingly, many bishops will be former monks. So there will be a little bit of, a, you can imagine, a little bit of nastiness about this. You know, you're a sellout who left the monastery for political power and worldly fame and glory. You know, if you're a bishop, you know, you're a sellout who joined the establishment in some way. We, however, are living more authentically than you, even though many of us, if given the opportunity, would become bishops ourselves. In that kind of environment, you're going to have some monks who resent those bishops, and you're going to have monks who will sometimes cause some trouble. So for the bishops, it was important to try to subordinate the monks to them legally, to get the monasteries put in the ecclesiastic phylum so that the bishops could tell the monks what to do. The monks found that they could increase their autonomy from the bishops by acquiring city officials as patrons or by achieving recognition as civil authorities in their own right. And sometimes this would spill into violence with the monks in street gangs uh, beating people up, uh, sometimes against pagans, but also against bishops and their supporters. You could get some pretty nasty stuff going. And this is something that's always been true in Roman history. The followers of different teachers of rhetoric would sometimes get into fights in the streets and beat each other up. You had a lot of plurality in the Roman Empire, and relations could often be uneasy among different factions that emphasize different things. Sometimes there's a narcissism of small differences. Eventually, an effort was made to clean this up. So that at the Council of Chalcedon in 551, they put a stop to the use of monks uh, by civil offic officials against bishops by formally subordinating the monks to the bishops. And that move is consolidated by Emperor Justinian in the 6th century. So... By the time we get into the six, uh, into the 500s, excuse me, uh, at, at that point, we get less antagonism between the monks and the bishops, and that allows the bishops to begin to domesticate the monks a little bit. But that's a very long, slow process, because for so long, the monks are these subversive people who don't go along with the elites and with ordinary institutions. That's a big part of their appeal. That's why they're cool being in a monastery and 
the late Roman Empire is cool. It's one of the coolest things you can do if you're a young person. It's like joining a band or starting a band. It's cool. Now, one of the things that's interesting is that archaeologists have a really hard time telling the difference between monasteries and ordinary secular dwellings because so often monasteries are located right next to them in the cities alongside them. So this makes it difficult to, say, just dig up some old Roman ruins and go, ah, here's a monastery. It's hard to do that. And that means that a lot of the evidence that we have comes from writing. If somebody says in writing, there was a monastery established here or there, that's going to tell you something about what's going on. And generally, you know, this may not sound remarkable. Well, of course, you know, most of the evidence we're going to have is going to come from writing. But you have to think a little bit about who writes and what motivates them to write and also what people might not write about. Uh, and we're going to get into this a little bit more later. But before we do, I want to say a little bit about uh, the authors of this book. They emphasize a lot of continuity. So when the Sassanid Persians or the Arabs conquered cities with substantial Christian populations, they would usually tolerate the Christian monasteries, sometimes non-Christian elites in particular, you know, would even take over the role of sponsoring the monasteries from the Christian Roman elites that had previously sponsored them. The monasteries performed critical educational functions, and their educational functions got bigger and more robust and substantial as time went on. So when states came in and, and conquered territory off the Roman Empire, the elites would want to know what the history of the place was. They would want to have a sense of what was going on. And uh, this would mean supporting the local educational institutions that already existed in the area, which would often mean supporting monasteries. Now, eventually Christian monasteries did decline in the Islamic world, but that doesn't happen until around the 10th century, until around the 900s, which means for a good two, 300 years, you have a really substantial presence for Christian monasteries in the caliphate. We also find even some evidence of Tang Chinese elites patronizing Christian monasteries in the western part of the Tang Empire, which is really fascinating. It just goes to show how universal this uh, way of constructing monasteries was, how uh, the political economy was similar enough in enough places to start enough of these monasteries in similar ways for them to, to function similarly, to work similarly. And this is something that really sticks out in this book. The political economy of monasteries is, is pretty much the same wherever you go. To found a monastery, a monk has to become famous enough to attract the patronage of wealthy elites, right? The monastery then has to be in the city or close enough to it that the monastery can attract pilgrims and engage in trade so that it can keep acquiring new members, so that it can keep acquiring funds. That's the dance. You've got to get a Roman elite to give you a bunch of money, or a Persian elite, or a Chinese elite, and then you've got to found the monastery in or close enough to a city that you can do enough business to stay open. But I do want to emphasize that because we're talking about writing, 
so often as the basis of the evidence. And very often the authors refer to literization, right? Even someone who isn't a writer, we would know about them because somebody else chose to write about them, wrote them into the tradition of monasteries. And the difficulty with this is that it means that anybody who really became removed from society, really genuinely became removed, we would not be likely to have a record of that sort of person because that person would not only not write, they would not be written about. Yeah. Asceticism concerns people who write in large part because it has these political effects, right? It can be used politically in these different ways. But an asceticism that isn't political, there wouldn't be much interest in recording any of that. And if you think back to our episode, maybe you've heard it, maybe you haven't. A long time ago, we did an episode on the Artha Shastra, the Indian work, ancient Indian work. In that text, you know, distinctions are drawn between ascetics who live in communities, ascetics who live in wild nature, and ascetics who wander from place to place. So the observation that ascetics who still live in communities, in monasteries, in or adjacent to cities, you know, that they have a political character, that is not particularly surprising in itself. The real question is whether and to what degree these other kinds of asceticism were practiced. You know, did you have uh, ascetics in wild nature? Did you have ascetics wandering from place to place? It's difficult to answer those kinds of questions because genuinely political, uh, excuse me, genuinely anti-political asceticism doesn't attract a lot of attention. And even when writers do write about figures who withdraw into the desert, they often do this for their own political reasons. The writer is often motivated by a desire to get young Roman elites interested in this lifestyle, to get them to join monasteries. Those monasteries then tend to be in or near the cities. Uh, so it's very difficult to really get a sense for, you know, were some people actually withdrawing into the desert? Were some people wandering from town to town? unsure what to, to do, or maybe very sure that this is the, the lifestyle for them. Um, it's going to be very difficult to try to pen any of that down, especially because those kinds of ascetics don't build institutions. Once an effort is made to institutionalize asceticism, to build something that can last across time, whether it's a set of rules for how to live in a monastery, a physical building for uh, monks or ascetics to live in, as soon as you try to build something, that becomes politically consequential because you've made something which takes up space that requires resources to sustain it. As soon as you do those things, you enter into economics and politics in ways that you previously wouldn't have had to. The only way that you could really get away from all those questions is to practice asceticism or monastic life in such a way that nobody would really notice you. But a lot of the people who go into this lifestyle, it seems to be implied, do want to be noticed in some way. Of course, these are only the people who write or who are written about. And the fact that they're written about means that they stuck around close enough that people could hear about them. They were interested enough in becoming famous that they didn't go too far away. So those are my initial observations. Uh, you know, we're not really going to be able to answer questions about were there Romans in the who really went all the way down into the desert. 
Or were there Romans who really just wandered around without ever being remarked upon? Uh, if there were, we wouldn't know. But we could talk a little bit about monasteries and, and their political role and function, I think. And we can see what Alex noticed as he read this text. So, Alex, what did you notice as you read this text? When you were talking about non-political asceticism, I thought about accounts of fake marriages and also kind of communities of townspeople living as monks who were persecuted by the church. And then it made me think maybe people call the ancient times a golden age because they were just disciplined enough to, or normal people lived more like ascetics. But then that leads to a question of what's the difference between asceticism and just self-discipline? And why does one have like a transcendent or a god? And is that needed for good self-discipline? Yeah, so I think a lot of this comes back to Augustine and this argument that the Roman city was not a city of God initially, but a city of man devoted to base aspects of, of the human experience. One of these would, of course, be the, the games and the sacrifices that went on in the pagan cities. And for Augustine, these things were bad, and in a proper city, these things wouldn't happen. Well, if a monastery is an attempt to found a, a kind of proper city within or adjacent to the fell city, and the goal is to attract some people from the fell city into the proper city, well, you'll start with things like, well, of course, in this proper city, we're not going to do things that are obviously not on for Christian monastics, right? We're not going to sacrifice animals. We're not going to you know, support the you know, the games. We're not going to do things like that. Uh, then you know, you're going to further differentiate yourself in all sorts of other ways, right? It's not just that you're not going to do some of the obviously wrong things, but you're going to try to get some stuff right. And so there's this emphasis on all these different kinds of rules for how you ought to behave and different rules get written up by different people. Initially, there's no one obvious set of rules. Different groups of monastics who are trying to live better than their peer, than their secular peers, try lots of different rules and make up lots of different schemes. And most of the rules they make up don't work. And most of the monastic orders that are founded don't survive, but some of them do make it. Of course, there's, there's a survivorship bias. To make it, a rule would have to be compatible enough with surrounding Roman society and political economy that the institution could survive, in point of fact. So any institution that can survive can only survive because it's not too antagonistic with what's around it. But what I was saying is it's almost similar. I mean... Even the virtue of chastity in marriage was partly considered as something concerning your will. So, yeah, the, the everyday life must have been quite a bit more simpler. And then the monastery just takes that to an extreme level where it's so simple that maybe the consequences of your actions are felt internally, not externally. So it's a bit safer to practice, but... It's still quite similar in terms of how self-controlled you are? Well, I, I think from the point of view of Christians of the period, they don't know what our society is like. So they can't think of their society as simple relative to ours in the way that we can do that sort of thing. From their point of view, pagan society was full of sensuous 
distractions and sensuous uh, invitations. You know, if you look at uh, Christian discussions of what's wrong with pagan Roman cities, a lot of it is about, you know, there's all these, these smells and incenses in the air. They're always burning incense and they're holding festivals. There's all this color all the time. They're always trying to get you interested in the pagan practices with sensuous experiences, you know, taking of the drugs as part of the mystery cults and, uh, you know, these very uh, cathartic, uh, you know, ceremonies where you, know, you slit open the throat of the, the ox and, you know, blood pours out of it, you know, tarabolium. You know, there, there are these practices that are very intense. Pagan religious practice is very intense on a sensory level. So for the Christians, it wouldn't be, well, Roman life in general is simple and we're just trying to make it simpler. It would be Pagan Roman life is full of sensuous distractions and tempting in all sorts of ways toward all sorts of, of terrible things. And so the point of withdrawing from the Roman city is to get away from all that sensuous uh, invitation and to live in a way where you have less temptation and are more likely to be successful in spiritual practice. Now, if you really did get all the way away, then you wouldn't be tempted. And the so there's this question that's kicked up by the fact that the monasteries don't get all the way away, but instead are founded within the cities or near the cities. Well, if you were trying to get away from all the temptations of the cities, why wouldn't you get really far away? You know, think about it today in terms of, uh, you know, lots of young people, if they're in a city where there are nightclubs, they'll go clubbing. And nightclubs are very sensuous experiences with music and lights and alcohol and you know, the possibility of sex and all of that. If you lived in a place in the middle of Nebraska, where there are no nightclubs, then you couldn't possibly do any of that. You would be protected from all those sensuous distractions and temptations. And if you were committed to some sort of religion, it would be easier for you to follow your religion in theory, in principle, in a place where there isn't all of that going on. Now, that doesn't mean that you would be without temptation. There are still things that could get you in a town in the middle of Nebraska, but you know, there wouldn't be nearly so much. So in principle, the monastery is, is A, it's removed to some degree from the city, and then B, because it's a group of people who are together who are all committed to the same spiritual praxis, it's peer pressure from those people. Those other people are there to remind you of what you're committed to, even when you forget. Whereas if you're trying to practice your religion in a Roman city, A, you won't have many people around you to remind you of what you're committed to. So when you forget, there will be no one around to remind you. And B, you will be constantly bombarded with all this sensuous stuff. Now, gradually over time, as paganism declines, you know, that aspect becomes less central. But it remains the case that you know, Roman cities will have a lot going on in them that uh, monks are not too keen to get involved with. And yet the monks will not go so far away that they truly are protected from temptation. They will constantly be reminded of and aware of what goes on in these cities. Yeah, and in, in many visions in the desert, the, one of the temptations is why not just become a soldier and practice that way, I guess. And then depending on whether they see it as a temptation, as a, a demon or as something improving their lives. Yeah, 
they can have radically different interpretations oh. of that. You're also going to have you know debates about soldiers as you know, servants of the state and questions about the Roman state and whether the Roman state is something you ought to serve, even the Christianized Roman state, whether it's something that you ought to serve if you have this kind of commitment. Because the alternative for elites, which is often the literary audience for this kind of writing, it's someone who can read, who's a Roman elite, you know, their alternative is a more traditional Roman career, which often involves starting in the army. So that's why you're going to see a lot of, of what about the army? Because the army is the other thing that the young Roman elite can do. That would be the traditional old-fashioned thing to do. Yeah. When I was talking about the households and how they were supposed to be chaste in all worldly affairs, I was assuming that most of the city was Christian by that point and that it was generally quite, I guess, simple and maybe boring to be a Roman Christian because of how disciplined your whole life looked, not just private life. Well, even when the Roman Empire Christianizes, it's not as if all of the Roman citizens suddenly become really very virtuous, consistent practitioners of Christianity. And indeed, this is one of the arguments that gets made. It's, it's that for Christianity to really be successful, it can't be a religion which excludes people with ordinary vices. And you, know, you see this in, in Catholicism and in Orthodox Christianity, uh, both this emphasis that you know, the ordinary lay person is going to sin. That's going to happen. They're going to do these things periodically. And the aim is to mitigate that as much as you can, mitigate the social effects of it as much as you can. Someone who adopts the monastic lifestyle is trying to achieve a much higher level of spiritual purification than is the general target for the ordinary person who just lives in the city. By purification, do we mean a higher percentage of free will in every moment? Why think of things in terms of sin all the time? Well, you know, not that you would necessarily have to think of it in terms of sin. You could also think of it in terms of uh, insight. And this is often why, say, bishops tend to be drawn from the monastic population in this period, because the monks are thought to have arrange their life in such a way that they can have religious insights or are more likely to have religious insights or to benefit from uh, religious experiences. Um, that is, there's some level of space or scope for that. Now, of course, for a monk to make it out like they are talking to God or receiving messages directly from God, something like that would be very threatening to the authority of local elites in the region. So sometimes you'll have monks who will say that they have been given spiritual access to something that is in some way purer than whatever it is that the bishops in the town have. And this will become the basis for antagonism between monks and between bishops. But generally speaking, as the period goes on, the monks uh, less frequently position themselves as alternative sources of authority and instead position themselves as a way of extending the reach of the state or the church, right? So if you don't have a very large presence in the hinterland, but you've got a monastery out there, you know, if you're the ruler, that's a settlement. And if you treat it as a settlement and you recognize it as a settlement, well, you've got a, a base of power out there and you can send troops out there and garrison it uh, if you want. And you can you know, 
levy taxes from it if you need to, or give it a tax break and therefore say, look, I'm sponsoring it. You might especially do that if it's so far away that it would be a pain to tax anyway. You can go, look, I gave you a tax break. (laughs) I'm doing you such a favor. And then you can tell people in the city, look, I support these monks who live way out there in the middle of the Sinai Peninsula. Look at what I'm up to. I'm, I'm doing great stuff here. And maybe they'll agree with you. So the monks had a lot of different ways of trying to interface with these elites. And when we think about monks, a lot of the time, even if we think about old-fashioned monks, we think about monks in the high Middle Ages when they're much more thoroughgoingly institutionalized when their relationship to the church has been defined and they have uh, kind of been slotted into a specific spot in the church hierarchy. In the early centuries, all of this was in flux and open to debate. And you could have, uh, you know, initially there was not even full agreement on what church doctrine was. So you could have monks who really took things in weird directions and it wouldn't be obvious to everybody yet that they were heretics or that what they were doing was unacceptable. All of this stuff had to be negotiated out slowly over time. And that's why you have so many disputes where people are beating each other up in the streets. You have gangs of monks, gangs of of priests and their followers assaulting each other over questions because the questions hadn't all been answered by somebody in authority. But usually they earned their reputation before they were institutionalized based on it's always other people appraising them for, say, good luck or good judgment and never themselves advertising it. A bit like how the pagans before them say, like, what makes a good judge? Similar kind of thing. It's be- yeah, because they don't blow their own trumpet, maybe. <laughs> Yes. Uh, how closely there. related are the people writing the text to the people they're writing the texts about? Uh, hard to say. You know, but of course, uh, yes. Uh, sometimes there's a question about whether the person who's being written about actually exists. Sometimes somebody who isn't themselves as good as the hypothetical monk they'd like you to follow will write about a hypothetical person who may not have existed and say, look at this person who did all these amazing things. You too could do these things if you went and lived like this. And then if you actually decide you do want to live like this, you will, of course, not go hang out with the hypothetical person who doesn't exist, but with this actual person who wrote the text. Yeah, I guess you'll spend a few years in a monastery and then you'll be allowed to go out to the desert unless you're in a desert monastery, say in Palestine, where... There's lots inside the desert, but most of them were in towns. Well, quite the desert up. can also be treated as a metaphor. So sometimes you can go further into the desert without physically moving. The, the, the rhetoric desert, the ideological desert, the, the food desert. The desert can be a, well, in this kind of discussion, right? There is literally, say, if you're in Egypt or you're in uh, the Middle East, going further into the desert. You can actually go further away from the city and further out into the desert. You can also try in some way to get your practice more advanced or more developed, which is that would be the purpose or function of going out into the desert, right? And because you will never be perfect, you can always go further into the desert in some sense. So, yeah, why does non-perfection entail needing to go out into the desert? Is it that desert starves out imperfections? Doesn't it starve out perfection too? 
Well, the the desert is this you know, place where you will not be influenced by the dominant civic culture, which is meant to be you know, framed as as not good enough, in some way tainted, too secular, too penetrated by pride and status competition, right? To establishment. You really have to think about the monk as someone who is cool, is cool in the sense of anti-establishment, is cool in the sense of critical of elites, critical of their peers who just go join elite institutions and you know try to get money and try to get ahead. The monk is a lot like a Gen Xer or a hippie in this period. Now, of course, a lot of them will, after some period of time in the monastery, come back to the institutions and try to leverage the cred that they have developed through their spiritual practice for status competition or for political goals. So it's not as if there's a mutually exclusive relationship. But if you are a part, uh, if you are a partisan of monastic life, you're going to make it out like leaving the city or even entering a monastery, which is still physically in the city, it really gets you out of temptation in some way because you're going into this different environment that's run under a different set of rules. So the desert is, is the outside of the city, but the outside of the city can even be located within the city, within the confines of a monastery, which functions differently. And this getting further into the desert, this getting further away from the city of man is uh, both something you can do in a physical sense, but also in a metaphorical sense. And that metaphorical sense is important because that allows you to live in a way which is totally reconciled with Roman political economy, while at the same time claiming that you live in this other way that is better. And this is the difficulty you can culturally and ideationally and rhetorically, you can take lots of positions in life that you can't actually ground in a different political or economic arrangement, a different mode of production, a different way of structuring society. The monastery purports to structure the city in a different way with different, you know, uh, that, that allows for different kinds of behavior to come out. And if you think about it, this is also what Plato talks about when Plato talks about different kinds of cities and some cities being more amenable to the production of virtue and to the virtuous life than others, right? Certain kinds of cities for Plato are ordered well, and the monastery is meant to be a better ordered city. And a lot of Christian Platonists, Christians influenced by Plato, were into the monastic life for this reason. And if you think about you know, a monastic city as a city where the lay practitioners are there to help the monks be monks. That's not that different from, say, Callipolis in the Republic, where the producers are there in large part to help the philosophers do philosophy as free friends and helpmates to the philosophers. You know, there's a lot of overlap there in these visions. But because these monasteries are still grounded on you know, they've got to come up with money. And where do you get money from? You can get it from a patron. You can get it from farmland. You can books. get it from trade goods. You can get it from selling books. But these are things that are not fundamentally that different from the ways other uh, people in the secular world would have made money or would have 
kept their own estates and organizations running. So the monasteries will say we're completely different from the old schools of rhetoric, but the way they make money is not that different from the way the old schools of rhetoric made money. And if you get your money and your resources the same way as another institution does, it becomes harder and harder over time to differentiate yourself from that other institution because a large part of what makes institutions what they are is the source of their money, is who's giving them money, how are they getting that money, uh, what kinds of systems are necessary for the, that money to continually be generated, right? If you sell wine to keep your monastery open, the way that you run the vineyard, you depend on that way of running a vineyard. And so if that vineyard is run in some kind of exploitative Roman way, you're going to have some of that going on. <laughs> so this is, comes up all the time in contemporary conversations where people always want to found you know, some new charity or some new organization or association or commune that's meant to allow us to live better. Uh, you know, but the difficulty is actually coming up with a way of supporting an organization that's different, actually having sources of funding or revenue or resources for the organization that is different enough that the organization can actually across time be different. When you compared it to Callipolis, I wondered if Christianity is more individualistic. Maybe it's true for the Platonic philosopher, but my guess is a monk is, if they're in the desert, even inside the city, their whole world is supposed to be just their body or their mind or whatever. So a bit like when you say there's no need to posit an external being like you, your body, that's the boundary of the universe. So a few inches outside of your body is no longer your concern. And yet you're supposed to still, supposed to still learn about the whole universe while limiting your universe to just this container. Well, and, and yeah. you've got to you've got to read books. You know, in so many of the different monastic rules, there's reading time, and there's rules for acquiring books. So there's clearly a level of staying abreast of things. It's not just that you sit and meditate and or sit and contemplate or wander around in the desert without any external sensory stimulation or without any sense of community or any social interaction. Generally, in monasteries, there's quite a bit of overlap with ordinary regular life. And that makes it even more important to differentiate these ways of living, to make rules which show how the monastic way of living is different. And that can mean getting very, very granular about tiny little differences and emphasizing them and making them out to be really big. The challenge for someone who's really interested in, in monastic life is how to actually make the monastery different from the world around it how to actually accomplish that. And it's very difficult to do that in a way which is actually compatible with the institution surviving across time. So you'll have people who will go, well, there's no way of doing this. You can't actually have a community which is disconnected from other forms of community that exist concurrently at the same time. So therefore, the only way that you can really be committed to spiritual practice is to become someone who lives off of nature, someone who wanders from town to town. But we wouldn't say today that you know, for one, there is no nature really to wander around in. Most of the world at this point, the nature is national park or the nature is in some other way accounted for. And you can't just wander around in it and do whatever it is that you need to do to survive. There are places you could go uh, that you might pull it off in other parts of the world, but certainly in the Western world, in Europe, 
you can't just wander around and live off the land. Uh, then, you know, if you look at people who do wander around from town to town accepting donations from people, we're talking about the homeless, we're talking about nomads. Uh, these are not people who are generally regarded as having achieved some kind of spiritual development or spiritual enlightenment. It seems that, it seems that it, at least in our own context, being a nomad or being homeless is not obviously or straightforwardly compatible with uh, spiritual enlightenment, in part because if you are a wandering ascetic who accepts donations from people, your behavior is going to be shaped by what gets them to give you money, right? When we think about the homeless and, and how homeless people interact with you on the street in a European city, the interaction is shaped heavily by what homeless people know will get a donation from you. And that obstructs, you know, that instrumentalizes the interactions that you have with the homeless, if the homeless are interacting with you for the purposes of soliciting a donation. In the Arthashastra, it's made out that the wandering ascetic who gets donations is spiritually advanced, but that can only be possible if the donations are coming you know, from religious sentiment. And in the Arthashastra, it's suggested that the Hindu practitioner who sees a wandering ascetic should act as if they've been spiritually blessed and give them resources uh, uh, and hospitality on the basis of religion. So if you meet a wandering ascetic in that kind of society, the wandering ascetic is going to act really, really religious, whether they are or aren't, because that's the norm. That's what you've been told a wandering ascetic is, is meant to do in exchange for hospitality. Are they genuinely really religious or is it just a show? You, it would be hard to tell in India, wouldn't it? And that's why in the Arthashastra, there's all this discussion of fake ascetics, ascetics who act like they're really religious when they're not, because they know what the rules are for how to get uh, the means of subsistence. You know, conversely, in our societies, what you have to do if you are uh, homeless or if you are wandering from place to place to get resources or donations is different. And so different kinds of behavior predominate. There is this, this deep question, and it's very hard to answer, of if you are really committed to living in a way which is radically different from the prevailing way people are living around you, how you go about that. And the monastic orders and uh, the different species of asceticism have tried to answer that question, and they've given different answers. It's, it's hard. It's hard to have a good answer because ultimately there has to be some source of money. There's got to be some source of revenue. And that source of money or revenue ha has to come out of some economic system. And that economic system has to be compatible enough with the surrounding economic system that trade and commerce and exchange are possible. And so all of this constrains to a large degree the forms that monastic or ascetic life can take. But I was saying as long as you can bring the desert into the existing economic arrangement, and not keep them dualistically separate for longer than a period of X many years, then you are radically changing the society or yourself. Because even while you're conversing with another being, or there's not, you're not imposing certain concepts that you would have if you moved your attention outside of your single personal universe. Do you know what I mean? If you keep this boundary of the desert while you're immersed, then you just there's so much there's fewer filters and you can arrive at knowledge of what's actually happening maybe that's what the christians were might been doing well 
the question is, somebody's got to do the books, right? If you're to have an institution, someone's got to do the books. And when you join, it won't be you. So when you join, you will be free to do a lot of, of uh, whether it's meditation or contemplation or dialectic or wh whichever form of spiritual practice it takes, whether it's reading or writing or vows of silence, you'll be free to do a lot of that. But if you get to a point where you are quite advanced within the structure, at some point, somebody's going to have to handle the books or you know, do the economic activity which keeps the place going or get the information that's necessary for the economic activity to be successfully performed. And these things will have constraining effects. So certainly the premise of trying to do all of this is that to some degree, this stuff can be dealt with or overcome. And maybe to some degree it can, certainly for some people for some periods of time. But I, I don't think it can be taken for granted that it's overcome. And the thing I like about this text is that this text really emphasizes the degree to which there will be talk of it having been overcome that doesn't match up with the reality. Oftentimes, these monasteries and these ascetics are more involved than they let on. But I, I don't want to take that interpretation too far because I do think that there is a legitimate question about forms of asceticism that don't get written about, that don't get institutionalized, that are less embedded. And I do think you also raise a good point about even if there is some degree to which the monastic organization is you know, compromising on the basis of its embeddedness, that might not destroy entirely the value of the practice. It might qualify or diminish the value, but it, that doesn't mean that it would be no better than ordinary life. It might still be an improvement upon ordinary life, even if it can't solve all the problems of, say, being in a body that has needs and participating in an economy that meets those needs through forms of, of trade or exploitation or what have you that may be unsavory or repugnant or really deeply disturbing. Yeah, like, I, I guess keep the, using more extreme adjectives. The, the paterfamilias in Rome is they earn that title supposedly when they treat their slaves the same way they treat their children. So, Well, that would be a, a kind of moralistic narrative. Of course, legally, the paterfamilias doesn't have to earn the title. Oh, the yeah, paterfamilias yeah, has sure. the title and has a set of legal powers. But you can say, well, let's give an ethical exhortation. And this is something that goes on in a lot of societies where the economic system is taken for granted. You get to a point where, well, nobody can really imagine changing the, the way that things are produced or changing the way that uh, life is fundamentally organized. But there can be an ethical exhortation. Maybe there can be regulations governing how you live that don't change fundamentally the way in which things are produced, but will inspire or lead to more ethical behavior or conduct. Sometimes when you, uh, when, when I read certain parts of this book, I thought about figures like Elizabeth Warren who want a kind of ethical capitalism. There is a sort of, of push here for an ethical Roman city, a Roman city that isn't as ethically compromised as Roman cities generally are. But it's still going to be limited insofar as it is still a Roman city. It has to perform the functions that Roman cities perform in terms of production, in terms of participation in trade, in terms of providing tax revenue potentially, in terms of 
uh, being a military outpost in potentially in a dangerous region where there's a need to have some sort of installation in terms of a center of education where elites can go and and have their children taught the things they need to know. And insofar as monasteries refuse to play this game, they don't get patronage, they struggle to stay open. And so over the course of the period that we're discussing, the really subversive monastery becomes less and less common because it is harder and harder for that to be the model that survives. Initially, you have all sorts of radical versions of this thrown up and cooked up. But the most radical, most subversive, and most interesting will tend not to be compatible with the surrounding system and will tend to be gradually ground down. So you can look at the Roman emperors flipping after a good 20 years or so on the Christian monasteries as a victory for the monasteries. And in a sense, it was insofar as the monasteries that existed by 392 were, you know, those were the monasteries that existed. And insofar as those uh, monastics were invited back into the Roman city, it was a victory for them. But to get there from, say, 370, you had to thin these other kinds of monastery that were less obviously compatible. Uh, and you had to thin them either by getting rid of them or by changing their relationship to Roman institutions. And this is something that I think is under-discussed in politics. A lot of the time, when some faction or group wins political recognition or wins rights for itself, we treat it as a win for that faction or group. But oftentimes, the faction or group wins those rights by itself changing, by becoming different, by adapting to better fit into the existing institutions. And that's, this is not to say it's all one or the other. The institutions shift a little bit to accommodate the faction or the group, and the faction or the group accommodates to meet the institutions. But I think generally the faction of the group moves more than the institutions move. But this will always be portrayed the other way by the members of the faction or group who want to celebrate their acceptance and who want to minimize the costs that have been paid to get acceptance. Do you think they changed their living arrangements fundamentally that much? Or was it more political stuff? Like, do you think they became more coercive maybe? to fit in? Well, I think that in becoming the kinds of organizations that Roman elites can sponsor, that necessarily limits the degree to which you can really defend the poor. You can do charitable giving to the poor, but in terms of organizing the poor or trying to create a context in which the poor have political power uh, or are able to in some way demand things from the state, you can't help the poor in that sense. There's a point that was made by Augustine about the monasteries uh, taking money from Roman elites instead of land. And because they were taking money, their autonomy was being compromised. In a similar kind of way, if a monastery gives money or food to the poor, that monastery doesn't actually empower the poor to change their situation fundamentally. It creates a relationship of dependence where the poor need the monastery to get food or to get money. So almsgiving, when almsgiving doesn't involve uh, giving the poor property, when it doesn't involve that kind of transfer, it can put the poor in a relation of dependence. And a lot of the critiques of the welfare state focus on this, uh, you know, cash transfers being uh, something which induces dependence because they don't give you a means of uh, independently producing what you need. 
a means of, of producing even an income, which you could then exchange for what you need. So there's a limit when you're just giving income, giving money, giving all purpose means to someone. There's a limit to the degree to which that really empowers that person. And that's something that is important when we start talking about dependence and domination in a Roman context. For the Romans, property has to be fully inclusive. Property has to give you a self-sustaining income. If someone just gives you money, they're not giving you property in that sense. They're not giving you a self-sustaining income. They're giving you a lump sum, which you will deplete, and then you will come back for another lump sum. And so just as this critique can be made of the monastery that becomes dependent on the Roman elite, the same critique can be made of how the Roman monastery handles the poor. I guess the, the members of the monastery themselves would, there's a whole ideology of finding freedom within physical servitude. They eat barely anything, yet they do so much work. They have so much energy. So I don't know if they could then apply that to the poor that they serve, though. But maybe they could be comfortable with being incorporated into the, the church and then losing some property and being dependent on donations. Simply because the life is so simple and it's about finding freedom within constraint. It also kicks up this whole question about property uh, in Christian political theory, because you know, there are Christian theorists who are against property and think that property corrupts. At the same time, there are other Christian theorists more influenced by classical texts who think that property is a prerequisite for autonomy or for freedom. So when Augustine says the monastery has to have its own land, he's saying that the monastery has got to have autonomy because it's got to have its own way of sustaining itself. And therefore, it can't need money from something external to it. So it doesn't depend on anything outside itself. But if a monastery has property and derives an income from, say, running a farm, then the uh, way in which the monastery interacts with its farmers or with the poor, or with the, the workers who work the land, will be shaped by the way in which farms are run or operate in late antiquity. So you can get out from under the Roman patron who donates money to you. But the cost of this is that you end up in a relationship with the poor that is troubling in other regards. And is it fair to say the more they moved away from patrons, the less they were concerned with agricultural income? And no, I, I would say that they probably become more concerned with, with income if they have their own property, right? A, a monastery that's got its own property will be able to produce agricultural goods, you know, like wine or olive oil and sell them in the city, right? A monastery that doesn't have its own property will need a patron to donate to it. So it will be focused on winning over those patrons. So part of what's going on here, and I shouldn't be anachronistic, the poor in ancient Rome don't have a ton of influence either way. The focus for the monastery is on maintaining its autonomy vis-a-vis -vis the local elites, because if monasteries just become ways for local elites to um, project power, then those monasteries are not offering alternatives to the city of man. They're being in some way induced to serve that city. And the mo monastery is usually interested in 
getting some level of autonomy from these patrons. However, it's very difficult for a monastery to acquire property in the first place without some patron giving it land or choosing to support it. And so that creates a fundamental conflict of interest right from the start. Now, my point about the, the poor is that if supposing a monastery does then acquire a bunch of land, the usual critique of the Roman elite is that the Roman elite, who you know, has, is usually a landed aristocrat within a state, you know, that Roman elite then doesn't behave necessarily as well as, as you'd like because they are a, a master of people and treat other people as inferior and all the rest of that. So the monastery will say, well, the monastery doesn't do that because the monastery gives alms. The monastery gives its excess profit to the poor. But it will do that in terms of charitable giving. It will give money or it will give food relief. It will not uh, give its property to the poor. So the poor will not be relieved in that more fundamental sense. The monastery seeks that relief from the landed aristocrat, the secular aristocrat, but it doesn't provide that relief to the poor. It wants credit for doing for the poor what it tries to refuse from the landed aristocrat. But because in ancient Rome, the poor are in such a weak political position in the first instance, it, this is not a critique that is going to be articulated by anybody. Does that tie into what the authors were talking about, the monastery being in productive tension with the city? Yes, it's productive tension from the point of view of the elites, right? Because the elites will benefit ultimately from the monastery in all sorts of different ways. The elite can, uh, who is a patron of a monastery can burgeon their reputation by giving to a monastery. The elite can have their kids educated in a monastery. The elites increasingly are aware that bishops are really important. And if they want their kids to be influential, getting them a bishopric is at least as good, if not better, than getting them into the you know, secular Roman institutions, you know, civil service or the army. So even ambitious parents are going to sometimes be increasingly willing to entertain the idea of their kid going into a monastery as it becomes obvious that being a bishop is a big deal. So there's a lot of benefit there. At the same time, the monasteries are going to receive what they need to operate from these elites. And they're going to receive recognition from the Roman emperors, and they're going to get tax breaks, and they're going to get military protection. They're going to get all these things that they want. So there's a mutually beneficial relationship, but it comes at a cost insofar as it undermines any radical potential that the monastery might have for really transforming Roman society. The monastery becomes adapted to Roman society. It performs the functions of a more conventional Roman institution and ceases to be this radical alternative social formation. It's co-opted by its economic and political relationship with the imperial center and with the local elites. But nobody in the monastery is going to problematize that because by the time all of this happens, you know, it will all it will all be a fait accompli. You won't have a whole lot of monks who really want to go do something else. And even when the criticism is articulated, there isn't going to be any obvious route to do anything with that criticism. Now, we do see some, especially you know, big high up figures who go, the monks have become too uh, political. They're too urbanized. 
They're too integrated into civic life. Uh, this is often said because that person is being criticized by monks. It's not because this person really has a vision for some other way of structuring monastic life that actually gets them out from under all of this stuff. It's usually as a way of trying to undermine the moral authority that some monks are claiming to have or to win some internecine dispute. Now, meanwhile, the, the people that Christianity in its inception were, was purportedly about the Roman poor are just getting alms out of this, and that's about it. And they used to get alms a different way. They used to get you know, grain from the anima shipment, you know, the Roman grain dole. They used to get subsidized grain from the Roman state. You know, they used to get other kinds of, of uh, donations. When it comes to just some money or some bread, you know, the Roman peasants have been getting some of that for a long time. What they really you know, need politically is a power base, but that is never given to them. They had hospitals and also, I guess, maybe the ideology of hermiting, which might have taken off back in civilian circles once the monks become so institutionalized. So maybe just as a, yeah. Yeah. So this is the thing that I wonder about is, you know, maybe some of the Roman poor were able to you know, take this up and embark upon wandering around and embark upon going out and living in nature. But when we meet people who do this, poor people who wander around or who live in nature, we tend to regard them as homeless people. Uh, and we tend not to think very much of them and not to treat them as great religious figures. And we don't write about them as if they have you know, great religious insights. And in our culture, it's much more common to talk about such people as potentially schizophrenic or potentially addicted to drugs than it is to talk about them as potentially the bearers of religious insight. And I wonder if perhaps it was, it was the same way in ancient Rome, that if you actually met someone who was a wandering ascetic or an ascetic who lived in nature, you'd regard them as a crank. The people who say that they're ascetics or who say that they're monastics, you know, these are elites who know how to read and write, like to write stuff down and you know, are professionals and uh, you know, maybe are a little bit LARPer. At least it fits with the litany of humility, where you get more from God, the more other people think you're crazy. Yeah. But then, you know, you got the people that everybody thinks is, is actually crazy, and those people are never lauded in the texts. No, but they're lauded Except by Except insofar God. as they come back, you know, and uh, are revealed to not be crazy because they then give advice in a political context to some official. <laughs> Then, oh, look, it turns out they weren't crazy because the officials in the establishment listened to them. <laughs> That's how it tends to go in these texts. So ultimately, the test is still you know, not whether you really were living in alignment with God or with religious or spiritual principle. The test is always, oh, but does the elite listen to you in the end? Now, all that said, these texts are mainly recruitment texts. So therefore, people who are not living monastic lives who are young, who are thinking about what to do with their lives and are considering maybe living a monastic life. Once people join monasteries, they don't need to be persuaded to join because they're already there. And there's an opportunity for the way of life that's cultivated in the monastery to do its work and have an effect on them and change who they are over time. So even if you tell people preposterous stuff to get them to join, because that's the kind of stuff they would need to hear given that they grew up in some elite environment where their focus of their parents was on status and money. Once they're in the environment, maybe the environment itself actually is meaningfully different and does change the way they think over time. That would be the argument. 
Yeah. What it is we say to get you to show up is different from what we teach. But if we told you what we taught in language, would you come? And maybe that's really the big problem with all of this is that everything we've got is language. It's all written material. And so even insofar as there is something different on offer here, we wouldn't be able to see it just by reading people's descriptions or people's accounts of it. Because you have to come to insight through some kind of flash or yeah, as a fruit of long practice. Yeah. Through some kind of practice, you know, according to monastic traditions, you actually have to do the practice. And so if someone tries to describe for you what's going on in words, it's not going to be convincing if you really think about it. If it was convincing, then you wouldn't need the practice. You could just be told how things work in words, and that would do it for you. So this is, I think, the ultimate defense that every monastic and ascetic tradition has, which is if you're trying to analyze in words what it is that they do, you're always going to miss some of it. And so, yes, in, in a purely linguistic analysis, there will be these ways in which it would appear that these institutions or structures fall short. But maybe there's something else that's there if you just commit yourself to the practice and you don't talk about it so much. Mm. Anyway, we should probably leave it there. It's over an hour. Thank you guys so much for listening and have a wonderful rest of the day. Bye-bye. Goodbye. Goodbye.